0: Do you want to sharpen your skills as a writer or wish you knew a better way to approach your story? Welcome to The Author's Journey, a book club for writers. Join us each week as we read books on writing by the world's best storytellers so you can master your craft and achieve more. And now here's your host, Jason Hamilton. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Author's Journey, a book club for writers. We're going to dive right into our reading for this week which is from Million Dollar Outlines by David Farland and as we mentioned last week this reading is from the first half of section one. Since this book isn't really divided into convenient chapters we're just going to divide up the sections. This section ended up being quite meaty. I might end up cutting it back in in the future so we're doing a little less But we do have quite a lot to talk about today, and I'm super excited to get into it. So let's do it. The first part of this section is called Introduction, Writing as a Form of Entertainment. And basically, this is just a section that uh, is answering, like, why are stories important to us? And he starts by talking uh, talking about how... The average person who takes up writing may do so for a variety of reasons, and that's certainly true. You know, everybody has different tastes, different genres, and we as writers definitely have different tastes, and we write for different reasons. Some of us want to make money with it. Some of us don't. Some of us are in it for some form of therapy or as a way of expressing ourselves There are people out there to change the world. You know, it might be a whole lot of different things. Now, one thing that Dave Farland here makes very clear is that if you want to make a living at this, uh, basically make money from writing, what you have to do is learn what your audience wants. Because if you don't know what your audience wants, then you're not gonna be able to sell them anything and your audience doesn't care why you write. The audience is kind of oblivious to that. The audience has its own needs, its own wants, and you have to find what that is and appeal to it. So he then says, why do people seek out stories? And I thought that the remainder of this section where he goes in and kind of explains through all of this about why people love stories was absolutely fascinating. By the way, you might hear my little daughter in the background. She, we live in a studio apartment, and she is six weeks old. So uh, if you hear her, uh, that's, that's normal. She's, she's here. She's hanging out. Anyway, so getting back into it. So he actually gives us an exercise here to list, uh, for those of us who are writers and who already have an idea of the kind of book that we want to write, He asks us to list five things that you feel most people in that genre would like to read. Since I write fantasy, you know, he actually gives a fantasy example here of like liking to escape to strange new worlds. And I would add, you know, seeing huge conflicts resolved and seeing heroes end up being greater and bigger than anything that could possibly happen in real life. That's just off the top of my head. I didn't actually do this exercise properly. Uh, But that's something you could do if you want. And I'm sure many of you may have done it. But he gets into the next section, which is what is entertainment and why do we crave stories? Why do people read for recreation instead of doing something else? Like There's a lot of things we could be doing. And there's, there's a lot of things that we do do in real life. But when we sit down to read, we're giving up time to spend on something else. So why do that? And this is something that he tried to figure out and spends the the majority of this section on is trying to figure out why people want to read. And I think this is fascinating stuff. Honestly, some people will say, well, you know, people read for an escape. Or they'll read for the beautiful prose or something. And Dave rightly points out here that if, that he can escape by just getting out of the house. If he wants the beautiful sounds, he can uh, go listen to music. It, it, you know, if he wants to understand more of the world, he can go read an encyclopedia or a newspaper. So these are things that people often say people want in a story, but they're but we're not quite getting at the heart of it because you can still get those things from other sources. Now he actually gets into, in this next section, he gets into a story about a professor he had who would forbid her students from reading genre fiction. But then he found out that this woman had been reading a trashy romance novel and like cried when she was reading it basically being a hypocrite from what she said But when he confronted her about it, she basically said it was a way for her to deal with stress and it was relaxing to her. And this was something that he found came up a lot of the time when people would say why they read. It was relaxing. It was de-stressing. But when you think about it, like... Why would a book be de-stressing? A book is full of a whole lot of horrible stuff happening. happening. Sometimes really horrible stuff. You look at a horror novel, for example, a Stephen King novel. Like, if any of that stuff happened in real life, it would be absolutely devastating on, like, an epic and on a personal level. So why is that, you know, why is that interesting to people? Why is that stress-relieving? And he goes in to talk about the Feralt's Triangle, which is basically this basic structure of a story, which means, which shows that a story has a beginning, there's rising action, and then there's a climax, and then and then the falling action, and it ends. Basic story structure, right? And what he found is that he actually was reading some medical data, and found that this actually happens in our bodies. And he saw a chart that talked about biofeedback loops, uh, l- which is something that happens when, say, your body is under stress. It releases hormones to help you deal with that stress. And then when that stress is resolved, it releases different hormones to tell your body that it's no longer under that stress. That's a basic example of a biofeedback loop. But what he thought was interesting was that this seemed to mirror Feralt's triangle in that there was some kind of pain causing an injury, that pain would rise, and then it would climax, but then there would be endorphins that would match the pain, and then there would be a pain reduction, and then a new baseline created from that pain. And what he discovered is that this biofeedback loop was a lot like Feralt's triangle And he theorized that for all triangle, that that this basic plot is a way of creating an emotional exercise for us that to handle stress. Now he goes in and lists three ways in which we handle stress in life. One, we can remove that source of stress completely. So this is like if you're stressed about money and you get a lot of money that solves that particular form of stress. Or we can escape from the stress completely. So this is be like taking a vacation, but this doesn't always resolve the stress, but it is one way to deal with it. Or we can perform an emotional exercise to help cope with the stress. And this is, a, this is almost like exercising our muscles, which makes our muscles better able to carry weight. Emotionally exercising our brain To cope with stress helps us deal with that stress better and he says the fascinating thing about a story is that it lets you escape from your stress and exercise simultaneously so a story actually does two of these things escape the stress and exercise ourselves to cope with cope with the stress Now, another quote here from the book that I really liked is that he says, When you read, you must enter a world where you are placed in a meaningful conflict, conflicts that build and deepen and grow. In other words, we exercise by dealing with imaginary conflicts. In short, as many other authors have noted, the situations that are intolerable to you in real life are those that you often crave in fiction. And I thought that was really interesting. And that's why conflict is often touted as this like central thing in storytelling. It's you see it everywhere in books on craft. And when you hear teachers talking about craft is this thing of conflict. Like if there's not conflict driving your scene, then people will get bored. And that's I think that's very interesting that this basically explains why that is, is because conflict is what makes us interested. It's what exercises our brain in helping us deal with stress. And once we're able to get through this emotional emotional exercise, our body's actually better able to handle the stress. It's the kind of thing like, you know, if you stub your toe, it might hurt. But then if you break your arm, your tolerance for pain has suddenly shifted so that the pain in your toe is no longer as big. And the more pain you have, the actually greater that your tolerance for pain goes. And so that same principle applies in emotional stress, is that the more you're able to exercise it, the more your tolerance for stress goes up. And that's why stories are interesting. And I thought this was really fascinating. The first time I've really seen it laid out like this, and I absolutely agree, from my own perspective, that what Dave's saying here is is probably right on. Now, he does talk about some other things that are inherent in stories and why we read them. One thing he says that I thought was very interesting was, reading for recreation generally works best only as we read well-formed stories, tales where there is an ascending level of stress, doubt as to the outcome, followed by a conclusion where the stress is relieved. Now, this is something that Dave says that I think he talks about it several times that I think might be slightly controversial. I agree with him. Like, I agree with him completely, but I can see where there are instances where this doesn't necessarily hold up, and that is this concept of happy endings, or, as he says, this this conclusion where the stress is resolved. Now, now that doesn't mean it has to be really happy endings, like everyone gets married and everyone's just happy happily ever after. But there has to be like some kind of satisfying, hopeful ending. And I, I kind of doubt that that has to always be the case because I see too many examples of stories with no happy endings that nevertheless do exceptionally well. I would say I would point to Game of Thrones. You know, actually, I don't really know how Game of Thrones ends. But I do know that the general tone of Game of Thrones is that it's It's just not a happy ride for basically anyone. And another example I would point to would be The Walking Dead. Very, very popular. Although I do think that The Walking Dead started to lose its popularity once people kind of figured out that it wasn't going to have a happy ending. That's just a personal theory because it was doing so well. And then it just got really just worse and worse and worse. And I feel like people got tired of it after that. So I think there might be something to, to this. Certainly the most popular stories of all time have these happy endings. You know, your Star Wars, your Lord of the Rings, your Harry Potters. All of those kind of stories tend to have more happy endings, or at least not horrible endings. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. But to sum up this section, he basically goes through and lists everything. I'm just going to go through them real quick. Here are the basic principles of a well-formed story, the kind that really suck us in and give us that sort of endorphin uh, release, that stress release. First, a writer's job is to guide the reader through a stress exercise. We talked about that. Uh, Second, all stories must create a balance of stress. Now, this is something I kind of skimmed over, but something he mentions that basically you don't want to have too much stress or it'll... Just overwhelm the reader. That's kind of what I was just talking about with The Walking Dead. Or if you have not enough stress, it'll bore the reader. Because, like, what's the point of reading this? Because there's just not anything happening. And so you kind of want to find that that middle ground there. Third, not all readers will be pleased by the same story. That's another important thing. That people are different. They have different genre likes and dislikes. They have different mediums that they, you know, not everyone's a reader. Yeah, so you're not going to be able to please everyone, but we do want to try and target the, the larger groups if we want to have the sort of mega best-selling type of stories. Uh, fourth, am I on fourth? Yes. Fourth, stress levels need to be carefully controlled through the story. And so that's another – that kind of goes along with it not being too high or too low, that it needs to be controlled – so that you're not getting too much all at once and that it's resolved well at the end. Fifth, I must de-stress my reader properly. And that's again what I'm talking about, about the resolution to the stress. So this is, this is all a carefully constructed journey, not just for the characters, but for the reader in bringing this stress to the forefront and then resolving it in a correct and satisfying way. So that's the end of that section. I thought it was absolutely intense and fascinating. I've never really seen story laid out like this, and I thought it was very interesting and illuminating to kind of discover in myself like, oh yeah, this is kind of why I read stories, is to work out a lot of these problems without actually having to go through them. Anyway, we'll move on to the next section, which is what is story and how does it work? Can we define the term story? So I actually didn't mark up a whole lot of this section because he kind of goes into this. He kind of, he builds a story here with uh, a story about a guy who buys some lions and then they eat them. And he kind of goes through and adds a lot of elements to this story to make it a story. Because he says, like, just saying that he's a guy who bought some lines and the ate them is not really a story i would actually disagree on that part i think in the very very broad sense even me saying i walked from one side of the room to the other is a story because to me the basics of a story is like you have something happening you know probably to a character like i'm th- this is just i'm just saying laying this out right now as i see it i i couldn't necessarily back this up with a whole bunch of examples. But to me, that is what a story is, the very basics of a story. Now, is it a good story? No. And I think what Dave is trying to get at is what makes a good story. And when you ask that question, I think you you come up with some different answers. So I'm going to skim over a lot of this section uh, because he gets into it. And then he kind of summarizes it at the end with a model for a story that was created by a critic from the Chicago Sun named Al... I'm probably not going to pronounce this right, but named Algis Boudris. And his model of the story is that a story must have a character. That character must exist in a a setting. There must be a meaningful conflict. So that's a conflict that would be particularly poignant for that character and, and not just like you know oh he stubbed his toe right that's not a meaningful conflict it's something that would basically define this person's life then there's a try-fail cycle which is something that david talks about a lot uh where the character must try to resolve the conflict and then fail and then he tries again with more resources and fails again and then he makes one final attempt to resolve this problem with basically throwing everything he is possible at throwing at this conflict every trying as hard as he possibly can or she to resolve the conflict. And he, he or she may or may not resolve the conflict, but uh, we must be convinced that the character did everything possible. And then at the end, there is some kind of validation that comes from outside the character, uh, which is perhaps another important character congratulating the protagonist on some authority, a doctor or a policeman who looks at the fallen body of the enemy and pronounces the villain dead. So some way of validating that you did it, you, you succeeded. So he then shows this triangle, the Feraltz triangle that we saw earlier, but with a slightly different shape to it, with a little bit of more of a jagged mountain look. So it's not just a triangle because he's demonstrating these try-fail cycles. You kind of go up, then you go down a little bit, then go up and go down a bit a little bit. And this we see a lot in the hero's journey as well. Now, interestingly enough, this is a total side tangent, but I thought it was a really fascinating thing that I learned once uh, listening to a guy who hosts uh, a podcast called The Soundtrack Show. And he was talking about John Williams. John Williams is, of course, the guy who wrote the music for so many classic films. But in particular, he was talking about Star Wars. And the main theme for Star Wars is actually a model of Feralt's Triangle. Um, so you think about it, you go da 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 da. So you're rising, and then it goes, it falls a little bit da da da, and then it rises again da da and then it falls again da, da 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 da. So it's a series of rising uh, notes and then falling and then rising and then falling, and then at the end da 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 da, and that's the return, right? The the resolution of the climax. Just a fun little thing that storytelling is not something that has to be part of a narrative. It can be injected into all sorts of things like music, for example. Sorry about that tangent, but it's when I was looking at this Feralt's Triangle, I just, that just came to mind. Anyway, moving on. Speaking of Feralt's Triangle, he goes on in the next section to talk about story shapes. So you have things like the serial or episodic plot which is just kind of a jagged shape of many triangles uh, stuck together. And this is for stories that aren't meant to come to an end. Instead, the characters go from one adventure to the next. Lately, I've been working my way through the old Star Trek episodes, and so basically that's how those work. These are characters that are meant to be around for the next episode, and so it just keeps going. Or you have the journey home or cyclic plot which is very often what we see with the hero's journey where they go on this adventure but then come back home with usually some kind of greater uh, knowledge or skill and pass that on to other people and then that cycle begins again. Or you have another one, which he calls the onion skin or Chinese puzzle plot. And this is often what happens in a mystery. Uh, Basically the, the shape for this looks like a target with multiple circles outside of other circles, you know, like an an onion. Ogres are like onions, right? And this is the kind you'll usually see in a mystery tale, which basically is a story where you have it as each layer is peeled away and resolved, you realize that it leads to some kind of deeper mystery and things get even bigger and bigger. Now, he does mention here, and I thought this was an interesting aside, That not everything fits neatly into these try-fail cycles. Sometimes you might just have stuff happen to your characters in order for them to react to them. And uh, an example that he has about this is the Tom Bombadil part of the Lord of the Rings. Which a lot of people say can just be quickly taken out and indeed was taken out of the films. But if you did that, the story becomes far more linear. And sometimes adding things like that can sometimes make it interesting. In the case of Tom Bombadil, I do agree that it might actually be a tighter story without it. Uh, and now, don't come at me, all you Lord of the Rings fans. I love the Tom Bombadil. But it does, in my opinion, slow the story down. But you can have stuff like, like that to mix things up a little bit. Um, he, he puts it this way such a story will tend to get bogged down as trivial incidents arise in the writer's mind and find their way onto paper. So you don't want to get too bogged down with these kind of things. Still, if you as a writer find yourself stuck for a bit, if you're writing a story and can't quite make out what should happen in the long run, it doesn't hurt to revert to this method for a scene or two as you let your subconscious work out the answer to your problems. So there's something you could do. Now we're kind of getting towards the end of today's material and, um, uh, introducing the stuff we're gonna cover next time. So his next section is called Defining a Million Dollar Property. And basically this is the idea, like we we as authors wanna write the series that's going to make a million bucks, right? And most, he says most successful authors build their careers around one or two major intellectual properties. David Farland, uh, his major intellectual property is the Rune Lord series and that was just something that hit him one day he came up with the idea for the magic system and that uh, that series has indeed according to him made him millions of dollars and you'll see uh, you know not everyone's going to have the kind of success that jk rowling or george lucas have had but a lot of people do have these ideas that make that are million dollars ideas and so we kind of want to start thinking about how can we get these kinds of ideas that these multi-million dollar intellectual properties. And in the next section, he, he says, we basically start by doing research. One of the things he says here is that he, he asks, what does the reader want? And that of course changes from reader to reader. But if you're looking to sell big, you need to begin by doing some research. And I love this because this is something we talk about in self-publishing that in order to really have success in self publishing you have to read things in the genre and make sure that your work is it fits into that otherwise your your readers won't like it and a lot of people think of that as selling out but it's uh, it's true like it, you know this is what people want like why wouldn't you start by researching that it's it's a very simple way to make your book big Anyway, next time we are going to be covering more about that particular topic, how we can do the research to really have a popular book. One of the things he says here is that you've got to look beyond books because honestly, the readership for books is only in a couple of million. If you want to go really big, like Harry Potter big, you've got to look at film, video games, comics, all these different things, television, and see what those all of those stories have in common, especially the, the mega bestsellers, right? So next time we are going to dive into that, we're gonna start from the next section, which begins with audience analysis, colon film, and we will proceed up into the end of section one, and that will be our reading for next time. Pretty simple, basically everything from where we finished this week to the end of the section. I'm excited to start reading that with you. Please let me know all of your thoughts both from this week and from next week's reading in our Facebook group. That Facebook group is The Author's Journey, a book club for writers just like the title for this podcast. Find us there, start up a conversation. I'm excited to be there and talk to you about it. And I will see you next week when we cover the second half of section one. Thank you for joining us on The Author's Journey. Join us next time as we continue our exploration of great books on craft, And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.